Uh, it is report card season in many of our, our homes and many of our, our local schools. Um, for many of our teachers, writing report cards, or you finished hopefully writing them by now. Uh, but uh, right after I sat down on Thursday evening with my, my two older kids to talk through their grades, two thoughts came to mind. First, report cards are way longer and way more involved than I ever remember them being when I was a kid. There, there are, there, there's a letter from the principal that comes with the report card. And then there's a whole key that comes to explain the grades because the grades aren't just A, B, C, and D anymore. And, and then on top of that, there's comments from the teacher in each section. Carolyn, is it a lot of work? It seems like it's a lot of work to write a, a, a report card. So that was one, one thought. And then secondly, as I was sitting down with my oldest daughter... I had the thought of, when did I become my dad? (laughs) I I could close my eyes and see him saying the exact same things, the exact same words that were coming out of my mouth to my oldest daughter. My dad, he had high expectations. He valued education. He, He valued hard work. And I caught myself leading my daughter into the same place my dad often led me whenever I brought my report card home. Now, it's not that my mom didn't have a similar set of values. She's a lifelong educator. Of course, she wanted us to, to work hard and, and to achieve and, and to do well in school. She just took a, a much, much different approach. Now, the reality is the, the values that, that my parents passed down to my sister and passed down to, to me were shaped by a variety of influences. They were shaped by their own parents and their own parents' parents, by the Midwest culture that they grew up in, by, by their friends, by what was happening in the world during their formative years. All of those things shaped their values. Whether they responded to those things positively or negatively, it, it shaped them. And they played a big role in shaping me. And now, along with my wife Haley, we play a role in shaping the things that our kids will value. Now, whether it's our faith, whether it's our our politics, our views on education, our our views on economics, our thoughts on sports, the teams we're cheering for during during, uh, March Madness, Eddie, congratulations. UCLA fans, congratulations. They're doing all right. Our thoughts about sports, our thoughts about any uh, arts, the, the way that we see the world, it's all shaped through what, what we experience and the people who we have relationships with. So during Lent this year, we've been talking about uh, different objects that we often associate with our, our faith, some of which uh, are, are more obvious than others. So on Ash Wednesday, we talked about dust. The first Sunday of Lent was Communion Sunday, so, so we talked about the imagery that we often associate with, with communion, with bread. And last week, I invited us to hit pause every time that we see a cross, whether it's a, a cross that we wear, whether it's a cross that we see in church, or, or, or whether it's one we see in our home, that every time we see a cross to hit pause and to reorient ourselves toward God. Today, and, and really through the rest of, of this week, With our Lenten devotional, we're going to explore 
the imagery that, that Scripture uses associated with, with coins. Now let's take a, a quick poll. How many of you have coins in your pocket right now? Coins in your purse? A couple people. Now I'm not talking about cash. I'm not talking about dollars. I'm not talking about checks. I'm not talking about cards. Physical coins. I had the, I had the realization um, on Friday night. We, we went out to dinner and there was this little room with an arcade in it. And I didn't have any coins. And, and my kids, I gave them dollars to go to the coin machine. They didn't know what to do because they're not used to coins. The, the coins just kind of look different in today's world. We don't necessarily carry them as much as we once did. But there was a time not too long ago where they were significant. You could buy a stick of gum or five sticks of gum for a nickel. How many of you remember doing that? You, you can make a phone call with, with two dimes. How many of you remember doing that? One dime. One dime. One dime. All right. I don't remember that, but, 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 uh, you, you could actually scramble and find spare change in the couch to fill up your car. Can't do that too much today. So even though we don't use coins in the same way that we once did, the way that we use our money says something about our values. The way that we approach the coins around us says something about our values. Now, this isn't intended to be a sermon just about money, but the way we use what we have says something about what we value. So in that first passage that, that Pastor Daryl read, Jesus and the disciples, they, they witness an offering taking place in the, the temple courts. And they see wealthy folks dropping off their gifts, their offering. And then a, a poor woman walks up and, and pulls out um, what, what's presumably a, a much smaller amount. And, 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 and Jesus says, most of these people, they give out of abundance, but, but she gives sacrificially. Jesus, he's, he's really contrasting two worldviews, one that valued extravagance, one that valued the appearance of making a big deal of what you're, you're putting in the offering plate. And one that valued commitment and sacrifice. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Mark. And while it again involves money, it's a passage that reminds us to think about how we live and how we, we function in the world. So starting at chapter 13, or sorry, at chapter 12, verse 13, we read this. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked, bring me a denarius. And let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I joked with Ed before service this morning that um, it's hard enough in church when you talk about money. But if you really want to have some fun. Talk about taxes in church. Talk about taxes in church. It was about, it was about 
three years ago that, that leaders from WPC staff, elders, and, um, and others began the process of, of trying to map out what was next for us as a church. It, it was just a few months after our 50th anniversary celebration was canceled because of the Woolsey fires that arrived on the heels of the borderline tragedy. And we spent about a year, a group of us spent about a year trying to find a way forward that, that honored the past, that, that would help propel us into what was next, into our next chapter as a, fir, as a, as a church. It, it was an attempt to kind of say, hey, the world doesn't look the same today as it did in 1968 when our church was planted. And of course, that, that whole gathering, our, our year-long gathering together, was all before COVID hit. So after t- talking through the history of WPC, we, we brought in a consultant, we read scripture, we prayed together, we, we picked apart all kinds of words and phrases, and, and we landed on a, a vision statement that we still use today, that we exist as a church to invite all people to follow Jesus on a journey of faith friendship and service. And we, we came up with this really after picking apart, well, what do we mean when we say all people? What do we mean when we say follow Jesus? What do we mean when we say journey? And, and we, we picked apart each and every word. We, we came up with, with four strategies that basically define how we journey together. So our goal is to be a community that's committed to growing in faith. So, so some of what we do is toward growing in, in faith, to, to serve others in our community in the world, to gather together in fellowship and to celebrate in worship, which is what we're doing right now. Those were our strategies. That was how we were going to live out that vision statement. All that we do in one way or another fits in these four, four circles. But between... Coming up with that vision statement and and landing on our strategies, we aimed to arrive at some core values. And some of you that were on this Vision 2020 team were a part of these conversations. And and I mentioned that we picked apart words coming up with a vision statement. But when we got to the values, oh, we picked apart every single, right, Michelle? We picked apart every single word. Well, what does that mean? How can that be read? How is it going to be interpreted? We're a church that shows caring respect. Because each person is created in God's image that inspires growth because God loves us, meets us where we are, and moves us with grace. A church that engages one another in community because God wants us to gather and to share our gifts. And a church that aims to have a meaningful impact because God calls us to make a difference in today's world. So our strategies are intended to show, show us how we journey together, but our values are intended to be a part of all that we do, to be a part of what we feel as we are journeying together. Whether that's here in worship on Sunday morning, whether that's on the softball field on Sunday night, whether that's at JYF on Tuesday or SYF on Sunday or CNA on Wednesday, we have a whole lot of acronyms. <laughs> and all that we do, choir practice, church, gathering on the courtyard, The idea of these values is when someone engages a member of Westminster, they're saying, oh, I feel like I'm respected in that place. Oh, I feel like I get to make an impact when I'm a part of that community. That all that we would do, these values would be a part of all of who we are. They point to why we do what we do. It should permeate through everything. 
The story of Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians is, is full of, of important reminders. And one of them has to do with values. It has to do with values and, and authority. Those of us who, who follow Jesus are to be shaped first and, and, and foremost by the kingdom of God. That, that's, that's what should shape us. That's, that's what we should value. So right before Jesus is asked about the imperial tax to Caesar, Mark tells us that the religious elite, that the Sanhedrin, these were the, the, the folks that were the temple priests and the teachers of the law, they're questioning Jesus' authority. They're trying to challenge him. They're trying to, to, to figure out how can we trap him. And they have a debate. They feel defeated in the debate, so they, they go away. Jesus tells a parable. And then they walk away frustrated. They walk away stumped. And Mark 12, 12 says that they're so angry that they're, they try to come up with, with new ways, new ways to get him, new ways to, to trap him. Sending in the Pharisees and the Herodians, what, what this new way that the Sanhedrin comes up was a, a new way. It's one of those, those new ways. And it was a wild idea for the Sanhedrin. Because from politics to, to the way that they practiced their faith, the Herodians and the Pharisees couldn't be more different from one another. These were opposite sides of every aisle you could imagine. People on opposite sides of every aisle that you could imagine. The Pharisees, they were, they were conservative. They, they didn't want to compromise with, with Rome at all. They wanted to distance themselves with Rome. They wanted nothing to do with what Caesar stood for. Because Caesar claimed to be God. The Herodians, they were progressive. They were progressive Jews. Some accused them of kind of ebbing and flowing with whatever culture threw their way, as long as it benefited them politically. So the Herodians would do what, I mean, in their name is Herod. They would do whatever they could to benefit politically, to move their agenda forward politically. And, and the Pharisees would do everything they could to stay pat, to stand pat. And, and the church leaders, the, 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 the religious elite, they think, hey, I got an idea. Let's pair them together and send them after Jesus. Let, let's pair them together and send them after Jesus. The, these two groups constantly clashed. But when Jesus appeared and started challenging groups on both sides, they said, I think we have a common enemy. Let's go after him. Together they come up with a trap. They say, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. That you don't pander to the right or to the left. That you just speak truth. So tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What should we do? Now I know it's tax season for many of us, how many of you paid your taxes already? Uh, well, it's a good job. But this question, again, is about much more than taxes. Way, way more than taxes. There wasn't a Jewish person alive in, in Jesus' day who was neutral when it came to Rome or when it came to Caesar. They had been paying an imperial tax for, for just over two decades. It started in about 6 A.D. that they were, they were paying the, these, these taxes. And, and so you either resisted, you didn't want to pay them, or you just accommodated and you, and you paid them. If Jesus answered yes, 
Yes, go ahead and pay the tax. He'd give reason for the Pharisees to charge him with blasphemy because Caesar claimed to be God. And if he said no, Herodian Jews would send news of a rebellious leader to the Roman authorities and he'd be charged with subordination. It was, it was a, a, a no win if he answered yes or no directly. And, and Jesus, he, he sees through the challenge and he asks for a coin, a denarius, which, which was a day's wage and the amount of the tax that Roman charged. He's handed the coin and he says, whose, whose image is on this coin and, and what's the inscription that is on this coin? They respond, well, it's, it's Caesar, of course. You, you know that. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what belongs to God. His short answers leaves the Pharisees and the Herodians both speechless. And I'm guessing it, it, it left the members of the Sanhedrin who were probably sitting in the back trying, to, trying to, to hear and trying to get him in one of those gotcha moments speechless as well. And we see four, four truths really in, in Jesus' response. First, earthly kingdoms have a place. Jesus acknowledges that, that Caesar has authority. Give to Caesar what is, what is Caesar's. That Rome served a particular function, even when it, when it is ruled by someone he disagreed with sometimes. Or in Jesus' case, someone who, who literally claimed to be God, that, that Rome and Caesar still served a specific function. Romans uh, chapter 13 is probably one of the most twisted and taken out of context, uh, context chapters of the entire Bible. And, and we'll get more into it. Remember, we started the year in, Ro- in Romans. We're going to return to Romans later. So we'll get more into Romans chapter 13 later. Um, but Paul is pretty clear that followers of Christ are called to be responsible citizens in earthly kingdoms. That, that we are called to be responsible citizens in the, in the kingdoms and in, in the world that we live today. But Jesus isn't just acknowledging the legitimacy of Rome here. He's also saying that Caesar's tax served a specific function, an important function. It was supposed to take care of the people, keeping the peace, building infrastructure, much of the same thing that our our taxes are intended to go toward today. So first, the earthly kingdoms, they they have a place, they serve a role. and, And secondly, the kingdom of God does too. The kingdom of God does too. And they can exist next to one another. In the same way that that Caesar had authority and served a specific role, Jesus claims that that God has authority and serves a particular function as well. But, But Jesus doesn't say that they're necessarily the same function here. God's authority is sovereign. God's function is to redeem what is broken. And the citizens of God's kingdom are called to reflect God's holiness and love while living in that earthly kingdom. One of the most important pieces in this this illustration for Jesus is whose image is on that coin. And it's Caesar's, of course, and implied in that is whose image do you bear? Whose image do you bear? Jesus says, whatever bears Caesar's image belongs to Caesar, but whatever, or whoever rather, bears the image of God belongs to God. 
It's a reminder that should be both comforting and honestly a little challenging to us. I mean, how many of us walk around consciously remembering that we are image bearers of God? It's important to remember that for Jesus, belonging to the kingdom of God wasn't just a, a personal matter, wasn't just something that we did behind closed, or we do behind closed doors that we reserve for ourselves. It was a commitment to extend the rule of God to everyone. And really to remember that God created all things. And while Jesus sets the two kingdoms next to one another, he, he reminds us that, that we can't confuse the two of them. That we can't confuse the two of them. And, and sometimes, sometimes we do. Now this is about as political as I'll ever get um, in a sermon on, on Sunday, Sunday morning. I really do appreciate the diversity that exists in our congregation when it, when it comes to politics. I think it makes us a stronger church. In the Presbyterian world, we often talk about it being a big tent. I think it's important that we remain a, a big tent. But when we confuse the two kingdoms, the earthly kingdom and God's kingdom, and make a, a political party or a, or a specific leader sovereign, we give membership in that party or loyalty to that leader redemptive value that is ascribed, should be ascribed to God alone. And allegiance becomes the only alternative to exile. Allegiance becomes the only alternative to exile. It's how we end up vilifying the other before sitting down and having a conversation with them. Unfortunately, I think this is where we've landed in much of our our world and much of our, our culture today. But if our allegiance is primarily to the kingdom of God, we're called to have those uncomfortable conversations to sit down with one another and talk. In his response, Jesus doesn't just leave room for human systems of, of government or encourage human systems of government. He, he goes as far as implying that they serve an important role. But we can't elevate our broken kingdoms above the kingdom that Jesus came to initiate. Which leads to the, the fourth, fourth truth. When the kingdoms collide, followers of Jesus are called to reflect God's kingdom. That's, remember, whose inscription's on the coin? Whose image do you bear? Our country and our world desperately needs Christ followers to be responsible citizens who reside in earthly kingdoms. When Haley and I lived in Malawi, um, we, we learned that there's this, this cultural thing that happened every time you met somebody new and and it really permeates throughout the the whole of central africa You, you, you have two questions asked when you meet someone for the first time that that first question is where are you from where are you from the answer to the question it review it reveals a person's history it reveals a little bit about what that person values it tells you about who they are But then the second question is also important. The second question is, where do you stay? Where do you stay? Where are you right now? So where are you from? Where, tell me about what you value. Tell me about what you value, where your, your citizenship really sits and where do you stay? Which was, we live in Mance too. That's the house that we stayed in. So, so my question for us is, is, is where are you from? Where's your true citizenship? 
and where do you stay? The two questions have served as a great reminder to me that while I live here in the Conejo Valley, while I've lived in Southern California for the majority of my life, that my heritage extends much further, that my values are to be shaped by citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We need teachers. We need engineers. We need students. We need politicians. We need baristas and business owners and every single role in between to actively engage, excuse me, to actively reflect the image of God in the world in which we live today. So Jesus doesn't leave any doubt for the Herodians and the Pharisees, or for us really, that Caesar has a place. But God is ultimately on the throne. Worldly peace and and order in the city, they were incredibly important to Jesus. They should be incredibly important to us as well. But God's redemption, taking what is broken and providing healing, transcends our human efforts to do those things. And if the state gets close to placing a a leader or a, a political party above God, we're called to obey God first. When we talk about values, whether those values are for our our church community here at Westminster or for us individually, for us personally, for our families, we need to remember our identity. Where are you from? Where are you from? We need to remember who we are and, and whose we are. We need to be shaped by the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, We ask that you would continuously mold us into the people that you've called and created us to be. Lord, throughout the rest of this day, throughout the rest of this week, throughout our lives, everywhere we go, help us to bear your image to others. We pray these things in your name. Amen.